Thanks for joining us for Open Bible Online today. Open Bible Baptist Church has been in South Jersey for over 60 years. We love this community and we want to be a help to you. In order to help us help you in the best way possible, would you do us a favor? Please fill out the digital connection card posted in this link. Here you could post prayer requests and also ask any questions you may have about Open Bible. If you'd like to give today, you could give online in less than two minutes. Visit openbiblenj.org for more information. Thanks again for joining us today. Now enjoy the service. A lot of times you hear people say something along the lines of, there are two types of people in the world. And then they go on to try to classify all 7.9 billion people into one of two categories. I think my all-time favorite was, uh, there are three types of people in the world. Those who can count and those who can't. That'll stand for a few of you later. <laughs> but in reality, one of my favorites that at least makes sense to me a lot is there are two types of people in the world. And there are those who see the world in black and whites. You know, the very, it's one way or it's the other. It's right or there's wrong. There's no in between. And then you've got those who see the world more in gray. I'm kind of wondering, who are the black and white thinkers here today where you say, yeah, I think in terms of black and white, no in-between. It's okay. You can raise your hand here. I'm not, okay. How about more of the gray area? You say, I, I live more in there. Okay. Yeah. I, I tend to find myself in that second group probably a little more than I should. But uh, the simple reality is even the most black and white thinkers think in gray sometimes, and even the most gray thinkers think in black and white sometimes. Now, let me ask, is the Bible a black and white or a gray book? And I don't mean the color of your cover. Black and white or gray, what do you think? Uh, mostly black and white, right? It's, it's a little hard to mess around with thou shalt or thou shalt not, right? It's kind of hard with that. So the principles of the Bible are clear, but the world we live in, not quite so much, right? Uh, for example, is it okay for Christians to use CBD for medicinal purposes? Or is that too close to marijuana? Or is marijuana okay? Can Christians read or watch Harry Potter? Is it okay for Christians to drink alcohol without getting drunk? Some of you are pretty uncomfortable in here right now, right? <laughs> because here's what happened. All of you who were the black and white thinkers, as soon as I brought up those questions, you had the Bible verse ready for me, whether you thought it was right or not. You said, here it is. This is why the Bible says you can or can't do it. And then the gray thinkers were like, wait, wait a second. There are people who don't think that's okay to do, right? And it's all in the same church here. Do we believe the Bible is clear in its message, yes or no? Yes, absolutely. I'm glad we're awake here this morning. Thank you, Brother Rich. So how then do good, godly Christians in the same church, in the same pew, end up disagreeing on some of those things? I mean, I'm talking about big topics sometimes. I mean, let's just even take the issue of masks. And no, I'm not going to get into anything political here. But I guarantee you that people sitting in the same row as you have a different opinion on do masks work? Should we ma wear masks? Masks don't work, but we should wear them. We should always wear them. We shouldn't wear Same church. How does that end up happening? And how do you know who's right? These are the kinds of questions we end up with every day, right? You know, we, we believe the, the Bible is black and white and what it says, but we live in a gray world. And sometimes, I'd say most of the times when we run into a problem of making Sunday apply through the rest of the week is because we're trying to get a black and white principle into a gray world. Most of you, if you 
saw the bulletin today because I've already talked to a number of you before the service, you saw that it was going to be me preaching because Nehemiah was on there. If you've been, if you've been here in the last year <laughs> and you've heard me preach at all, there's a good chance you heard Nehemiah because I, I, I went back through, through my, uh, my records and 70% of the sermons I've preached in the last year were from Nehemiah. So <laughs> there's, there's a good chance you already knew that was going to be me uh, without a name on there. But don't worry. If I've worn you out of Nehemiah, we've got today one more sermon, and then after that, I'll throw you a curveball, and we'll see where the Lord leads. But, but the reason we've been in Nehemiah so much is because I believe that Nehemiah speaks to the very problem that we just discussed, how to get these black and white principles to apply in a gray world. You see, a lot of times in a, in a church, we open up Nehemiah for one of two reasons. Number one, the pastor wants a new building project. You guys know what I'm talking about here? You ever seen that? We, Nehemiah built a wall, and therefore, we want to build a new building. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. Really? That, look, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean no disrespect if anybody here has ever preached that sermon before. I don't remember that. But that's not what Nehemiah is about, folks. But we get that. Sometimes the other one we get is leadership, right? Because Nehemiah led a bunch of people. So when we want to tell men how to shape up on leadership, we turn to Nehemiah. But it's also not a book on leadership. And in fact, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, I'll explain why when we get to the end of the book there. But Nehemiah is really, I believe this, is a book about how to live a black and white gospel in a gray world. I've been giving you titles for the different sermons throughout, but if I could title the entire series on Nehemiah, it would be how to live a black and white gospel in a gray world. So if you're ready, let's turn to Nehemiah. Chapter 1, we're going to the very beginning of the book here today to address this topic. And you'll see the title is, What to Do When You Can't See Footprints in the Sand. Some of you will recognize that reference right off the bat. Others, I'll explain it later on. But the idea of this sermon today is what to do when you have your black and white morals that meet a gray world. What to do when you're not sure what, to de- what decision to make, you could say. What to do when you know there's a decision to make, but you don't know what God wants. That's what I'm driving at today. And my goal is to give you a, a confidence that you can make the right decision under God. Nehemiah chapter 1 begins with verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, It came to pass in the month Kislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace. All right, you know me, we got to break this down before we get any further because we need to understand what's going on here. Who is Nehemiah? Now I realize if you've heard any of the sermons I've preached in the last year, chances are you already know an answer to that. But pretend like you've never read this book before. It's all new to you. You've never heard of this guy. You've never heard of this book. Who is Nehemiah? We got to look through the chapter. So let's glaze over chapter one there a little bit and see what information can we find on who this guy is. Well, we know he's the son of some guy named Hakaliah. That doesn't really tell us much. Uh, we know he's living in a place called Shushan in the 20th year of the month Kislu. And then in verse 2, some other guy named Kanani, who is somehow related to him, comes and tells him that Jerusalem's in bad shape. So that tells us a lot, right? <laughs> Actually, it does. But we have to stop thinking in our 21st century modern American mindset and go back to an ancient Jewish mindset. There are actually a lot of clues from these few verses on who Nehemiah is, but we have to play detective. And if I can give you one piece of advice, because I realize we've got 
all kinds of people in here today. Whether you have been reading the Bible your whole life, or you just became a Christian, or you've never read the Bible, can I give you this one piece of advice? Every time you pick up God's Word, read it like it is your first time. That will change how you read Scripture. Because we all come to the Bible with our own idea of what a story means, right? Maybe we learned in Sunday school, or we heard it in a song on the radio, or we heard a preacher, and that's all good. We need it. Obviously, I'm here preaching today. I think this is important. But sometimes we come to God's Word with what we expect it to say, and we don't let it speak to us in what it's trying to say. Come to it like you don't know what it's about to tell you. I think most of you know I just got married. I've been married for two and a half weeks now. <laughs> And Jana is just now learning New Jersey for the first time. Now, you know, she came to visit a few times, but she never, she's never lived here. And so she's learning the road, she's learning the area, she's learning the food, amen? She's learning the people here. And all of this stuff is new to her, so she's needing to pay more attention to it than if, say, she was just driving through Martinsville, Indiana, where she was from. When you're new to something, new to a place, new to a person, new to a topic, you ask more questions, right? You're trying to gain more information. That's what you need to do with the Bible. Ask these questions. Ask, who is Nehemiah? Ask, what's he doing? Where is he? Uh, the who, what, where, when, how that you learned in maybe literature class, those apply here. So we can assume from Nehemiah's questions about the Jews and his responses to them that he is Jewish. That makes sense. But is he living in Israel, yes or no? No, he's not. Why not? See, you can't just stop at one question. You have to go to the next one then. Why is he not living in Israel? Well, duh, it's Kislu in the 20th year. Doesn't that answer your question? I mean, yes, it does, but not right away in our minds. You say, so you should have two questions in your mind. You say, what in the world is Kislu in the 20th year or what? Well, Kislu is sometimes called Kislev. It's the ninth month of the Jewish calendar. Jewish months fall in between hours. So halfway, the second half of a month, somewhere around the 15th of the month, starts their month, and somewhere around the 15th of the next month ends their month. So Kislu is late November to early December for us. So it's wintertime. That's the main idea you need to get here. It's wintertime, and the 20th year of what? What doesn't say? <laughs> and this is where the story of Nehemiah just explodes with color. I love this. You guys ready? We are going to explore Nehemiah's timeline right now. What book comes before Nehemiah in your Bibles? It's okay to turn there if you have to. Ezra, good, good. Do any of you have a note at the top of a book? Like you've got the title, then you've got a paragraph, and then maybe the, yeah, okay. That paragraph, it's not divinely inspired. It, it's not in all of the Bibles. It's, it's something that man wrote in to help you understand the book. It gives you a little more context. Uh, nose around those, either for Ezra or Nehemiah for a second, and does, do any of you have a paragraph that explains maybe how the books relate to each other? Does it, okay, I'm getting a few head nods there. Originally, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book combined. They were the book of Ezra-Nehemiah, if you will, or Ezra-Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible. Now, we separate it in English because it's the story of two different people, Ezra and Nehemiah. But it's one unified story of the restoration and the recreation of a new Israel after the captivity. So Nehemiah 1.1 is not the start of our story. You have to go to Ezra 1 to learn the start of the story. So flip back there with me, if you would. Just a few pages back, Ezra 1. And the very first verse of Ezra says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, 
the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a declaration, or excuse me, a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, and then the following verses give the proclamation. So this is happening in the time of Persia under Cyrus the Great. We remember that Israel had kings, the kings failed. Around 580 years before Jesus, Nebuchadnezzar, we know that name, right? He took Israel in three different captivities into Babylon. Babylon fell, it became Persia. So we're living in the time of Persia right now under Cyrus the Great. So what book of the Bible would overlap, do you think, with this Ezra and Nehemiah story that we're in? For anyone who knows your Bible history. There we go. Good job, Rashad. Daniel. The book of Daniel. I realize you just go, wait a second, Daniel? That's all the way over here. It's past poetry. Yes, it is in our Bibles, but chronologically they take place about the same time. So Daniel is happening about the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. And Daniel 9 records this awesome prayer of Daniel. You like, absolutely have to study it. It's incredible. He had been in Babylon studying the writings of a prophet named Yeremiah. We call him Jeremiah. And we have those writings in our Bible. We call it the book of Jeremiah. So if we're going to understand the context of Daniel in order to understand the context of Ezra and Nehemiah, we got to look at Jeremiah's prophecy. Now, I realize Jeremiah is a huge book, and I want to respect your time this morning, especially since I know the youth group's going to the wilds, so I will let you cheat, and I will tell you the passage that Daniel was studying. He was in Jeremiah 25, verse 12, so turn there. That's a little bit past the poetry books. Jeremiah 25, verse 12. This is Jeremiah the prophet speaking back at the time of the kings of Israel. So Babylon is just about to take them into captivity. Not quite yet, it's about to happen. And Jeremiah says, it shall come to pass, in 25:12, when 70 years are accomplished, that I will punish. That word means to investigate. He's going to look at what the king of Babylon has been doing, and he's going he's to weigh it. He's going to judge it. He's going to say, have they lived up to the way a king should rule? And if you know anything about Babylon, they didn't. So he's going to investigate the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, that is Babylon, and will make it perpetual desolations. So Daniel's reading this. He pulls out his calendar and he realizes, whoa, we've been in Babylon for almost 70 years. Jeremiah said that when 70 years hit, something big's going to happen. That means something is about to happen. The Jews are about to go home. Now stop and think about this for a second. Imagine you're in Daniel's place. You were carried away captive 70 years ago when you were younger than me. Probably somewhere between like 6 and 13 he was carried away. 70 years. Most of us in here haven't even lived 70 years. But for those of you who have, imagine 70 years of your life. So maybe you were a teenager or a young child was the last time you saw America because you were in somebody else's country. In that time period, you've had friends who have had children, and they've never even seen their homeland. And they're about to go right now. You're about to be back for the first time in 70 years. What would you do? I'll tell you what, Nan, what Daniel did. He started to pray long and hard for his people. And did it work? Well, yeah, it did. Look back in Ezra chapter 1, and we see that God stirs up the heart of Cyrus to make that proclamation. What does it say? It says, who is there among all of you, his people? 
his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of him of his place help him with silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, beside the free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, and with all of them whose spirit God had raised, to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, goods, beasts, precious things, beside all that which was willingly offered. And Cyrus the king, he even brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought out of Jerusalem and put them into the house of his gods. Side note, this is so cool. Does this passage sound familiar to you, similar to any other Bible story? Think about Exodus chapter 12, verse 35. The children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. They borrowed of the Egyptian jewels of silver, jewels of gold, and raiment. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses down to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children. Do you see the connection here? What's happening in Ezra? You've got the children of Israel who have been in captivity. They're about to go out, and the foreign nation is giving them stuff as they go back home. What's happening in Exodus? The children of Israel have been slaves to Pharaoh for the last 400 years, and they're again kicked out and given a bunch of stuff to take back home with them. You see the connection? It's, it's like Ezra is painting this as a new exodus for the children of Israel. And who's the new Moses leading them out? It's Ezra. You see, when there's something like this, it's not just a similarity in your Bible. It's not, it's not random. The biblical authors were way too talented for this. When you see a connection like this, it's because they're trying to connect stories in your mind and to get you to think of a story before that would inform your understanding of this story now. So the returns to the promised land led by Ezra and Nehemiah are framed as a new exodus for the current generation. They knew they had failed the first time. They went after kings in their own way instead of God. But now this is a fresh start. It's almost like they got to rewrite Exodus and Deuteronomy to tell their own story, to try again. This is going to be the time. This is going to be the time the kingdom of God comes down to earth, and the Messiah is here, and we get to restore Eden. It's about to happen. That's what they were hoping for anyway. So much so that they built it into the literary structure of the book. But is that actually what happens? Well, let's keep reading. Ezra chapter 3 tells us that the first course of action they took was to build the altar. That's significant. They were making a statement that this was a spiritual matter to them. We spoke about two months ago or so on how there is no sacred secular divide in Scripture. We tend to have this idea in our minds that there are some things that are sacred, that are holy, that's Sunday, maybe Wednesday if you're really spiritual, and then there's the rest of the week. And that's secular, and God doesn't touch that. That's my area. But if you look at it in the Bible, there is no sacred-secular divide. Anything can be sacred or it can be secular depending on how you do it. And so what the people are doing by establishing this altar right off the bat, because remember, they're just going back to rebuild the city. They're going back to get back in their land. That's a secular task, but they're saying, first thing, we're dedicating this to God. 
Even the most mundane thing, even laying bricks for a wall, is about to be a spiritual task because we're including God in it. We're letting him be the center of what we're doing. And it's really pretty awesome. They actually even start rebuilding the temple, and it's so great. But if we're just being honest, it didn't come anywhere close to what the original temple under Solomon looked like. I mean, that thing was gold-plated. It was huge. This one, not so much. And we discussed about a month ago how the older generation, they remembered what it used to be like. And they were weeping, not for joy, but out of a little bit of depression that it wasn't like the good old days. And then more trouble came in chapter 4 of Ezra. Some of the enemies of the Jews complained to Xerxes, he was the Persian king at the time, and then again to his son Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes believed their complaint and demanded that all work in Jerusalem, on the temple, on the walls, everything had to stop. All right. How you guys doing? I know that was a lot of history. Are we all right right now? We good? Okay. Because this is where it ties back into Nehemiah. He is living in the 20th year of the king, Artaxerxes, who said to stop the work on the walls and on the city. So when he hears how bad things are and he's about to pray to ask God if he can go and rebuild this, he's about to ask the guy who stopped the project if he can restart it. You understand why he was so worried now? A lot of times you're going to hear preachers say, oh, he was worried to be sad in the presence of a king because you couldn't be sad, you'd get killed. Maybe, but I've done a lot of digging on that and I can find no historical reference that supports that. It's just kind of like a preaching myth that we say if you were sad in the presence of a king, you would die. That I can't find that anywhere in history. If you can, help me out here and I'll correct the message. But I can't find that anywhere. So I wonder why was he so nervous? Why was he so worried? Because the guy he was about to ask to restart the project is the one who stopped it. And he's in Shushan the palace. Now Shushan is also sometimes called Susa in the Bible. It was the winter retreat of the Persian kings. Winter retreat. When did this story take place? Winter, somewhere between November and December. So, coincidence? I think not. That's not all. Shushan was about 150 miles east of the capital city of Babylon. And this is not the first time in the Bible story, the biblical narrative that you've heard of Shushan. You just probably didn't even realize it. You should have two other stories bouncing around in your head that took place in Shushan. Now, it's okay if you don't remember it off the bat. Neither did I. I had to look it up, I'll be honest. But the biblical writers expected you to catch things like that. Right? It's like hyperlinks. You know what I'm talking about with that on a web page? If you see something that's maybe in blue or it's underlined and in blue and you click on that, it takes you to the next page. That's called a hyperlink. Like if you're on Wikipedia and you click, you're researching, I don't know, George Washington, then you click on the one about Thomas Jefferson, it takes you to him, and then Declaration of Independence, and it just keeps connecting all the stories. The Bible is full of these hyperlinks, if you will, that show you how the stories are connected. And so the first time that Shushan is mentioned in the Bible is Daniel. Daniel has this weird vision with the ram and the he goats and all those horns where we go, what in the world is that? That was in Shushan where he had that vision. But most of the occurrences are actually in the book of Esther. Almost the entire story of Esther happens in the exact same place Nehemiah is right now. That's cool, and it's about to get even cooler. Because we, remember, because we see here that Nehemiah got word from Kanani that Jerusalem was in sad shape. And it was because that ruler that he was under had stopped the work. Now, the book of Esther, I, you know, I'll get to that in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself here because it, it's so exciting how the Bible ties together. But 
Nehemiah, he, he, he prays in verse 11 of chapter 1. And Nehemiah prays that God would grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And remember, we're acting like we've never read this story before. So we don't know the context. And, and we have to ask, okay, what man are you talking about, Nehemiah? And then he ends the chapter saying, oh yeah, I was the king's cupbearer. Like, oh, minor detail. Thank you for sharing that. I kind of needed that. Here we go. What, you guys are going to love this. What was Nehemiah's nationality? Go ahead, I hear it. Jewish, he was Jewish, good. What was Artaxerxes' nationality? Persian, good, you guys were paying attention there. All right, so we've got a Jewish guy who would have been in captivity just 40 years earlier, serving as a really high position under the king of the known world at that time. You should have two more Bible stories bouncing around in your head of a Jewish guy serving in a high-up position in the court of a pagan king. What was the very first time that happened in Scripture? Joseph. Genesis 41. He had been a captive. Pharaoh raised him up out of the prison, and he's serving as second-in-command in Egypt under this pagan ruler. So you should already be thinking, how does my understanding of Joseph's story now affect my understanding of Nehemiah's story before we even know anything about Nehemiah. What's the last time that we know of a Jewish man serving in a high-up position under a pagan ruler? Mordecai in Esther, when he took Haman's position after Haman died. So, you should be connecting in your mind the thought of Mordecai and Joseph and how God raised up someone out of captivity to lead his people into salvation, and that should inform your understanding of what's about to happen with Nehemiah. Can you see how cool this is? Like, the biblical writers were absolute geniuses in the way they wove these stories together. Our God is incredible in how he weaves our histories together. So we have all this set up, and then Nehemiah says that he's the cupbearer. Now, some of you maybe have an idea of what this word means, and some of you have no clue. I always thought of a cupbearer as kind of expendable, you know, because he's testing the king's food for poison. And, and yes, he was testing the king's food for poison, but he was not expendable at all. This guy would have done everything. And I'm, I'm sorry if you are not a superhero fan at all, but this was like Alfred to Batman, okay? Nehemiah was the Alfred to Artaxerxes Batman, Okay, and if you know anything about Alfred, he didn't just serve Batman tea, right? He helped Batman to build the costumes. He was the eye in the sky on the computers. He helped him to clean the mansion. He, he kept the Bruce Wayne Batman persona together. He even fixed Bruce up. He was a doctor, okay, whenever he got hurt. He would, he would train Bruce in some of the stories and how to fight. Okay, so think of that as being Nehemiah. All right, jack of all trades, not just somebody who tested your food for poison. He did everything. In fact, he was probably even in charge of the Winter Palace of Susa or Shushan. He was not just a nobody. He was a very important guy under the important guy in the world at that time. But did you catch his prayer in verse 11? What does he call himself? A mere servant. What does he call the king of the known world at that time? Just a man. I don't think Nehemiah was being disrespectful here. I think he understood how humanity relates in comparison to God. And it's not that God doesn't care about us. I mean, obviously he did. He, he does. He sent his son to die on the cross for us, all right? But a fancy title doesn't make you more important in God's sight than somebody else. 
a, a family lineage doesn't make you more important than somebody else because eventually it all goes back to Adam and Eve and guess who created them? A color of your skin, a nationality, none of that makes you more important one way or the other before God. And that's why Nehemiah had no trouble asking God to help him with what he was about to do. So Nehemiah's story forms a mental hyperlink to the stories of Joseph and Mordecai. Does anyone know, because you guys are impressing me with your answers here today, this is really good. Does anyone know the only book in the Bible, there is one out of 66, the only book in the Bible not to mention God by name? Very good, the book of Esther. Esther does not once mention the name of God. You can look at it all throughout. I did trying to prove it wrong, but no, it's true. God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. But if you've ever studied the book of Esther, (laughs) there's like no other book in the Bible that just shows God's fingerprints everywhere as much as Esther does. I I mean, just the way he got Esther in the court of the king, the way he kept her from being killed for the things she was doing, the way he got Mordecai into the position, the way he saved the Jew, it was over and over again. But there are no flashy miracles in the book of Esther. There are no walking on water, no dead men being raised to life. And Nehemiah and Ezra are taking place at the same time Esther did, maybe 20 to 80 years after Esther at the most. So it's still in this time period of God's not doing flashy stuff, like he's not parting the Red Sea for the children of Israel. In fact, Nehemiah almost ends the story of our Bible. I realize it's in the first section. Let me rephrase that. Nehemiah almost ends the story of our Old Testament. I realize it's in the middle, but chronologically, you pretty much have Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Zechariah and Malachi, and that's right the end. And then we have 400 years that we call the silent years, where God did not speak directly to man. In fact, the next time he did was through an angel to Zechariah and to Mary and Joseph in uh, Matthew and Luke. So this is a time period where God's not working over-the-top crazy, wow, that's an amazing miracle kind of thing. But God was still at work. And that really excites me because guess what? I don't see a lot of people walking on water in an average week for me. Raising the dead is not a normal Tuesday for me. And I'm doubting it is for you either. If it is, you're probably in the wrong church here. (laughs) That wasn't meant to be that funny, but just... Anyway, moving on. (laughs) Have you guys ever heard the poem Footprints? Yeah, a lot of you have it. There are a few different versions, but the, the general idea is that there's a person who's walking along the beach with God, and they get to see... Um, events of their life played out. And as they do, they see two sets of footprints. And they say, one of them was mine, one of them was the Lord's. And then they say, but as I got to see some of the more difficult points in my life, the trials, the, the really hard times, I only saw one set of footprints. And it really disturbed me that God would leave me alone in the moment of my darkest trials. And so I asked, I said, Lord, why would you leave me? You said you would never forsake me. Why is there only one set of footprints in the sand? And God responds, my child, that is when I carried you. A lot of times in life, we don't see God working through flashy miracles. I think most of us can say there was, you know, sometimes in me, oh, yeah, that had to be God. You know, we have those stories. But most of life is mundane. Most of life isn't crossing the Red Sea. 
what do you do in those times when you're not sure exactly where God is or what he wants or, or what's about to happen or who's going to pastor a church or, or, or what you need to do for a job or fill in the blank with it? What do you do? Well, number one, you have to go to God. You have to go to God. I realize we have a really diverse crowd in here, so when I say that, you might be thinking of different things. But I'm going off of the fact that Nehemiah prayed here. I realize that prayer for you will probably mean something different than it does for me and for the person next to you. Because some of you in here go, oh, yeah, prayer, that's, I do that all the time. And some of you in here are going, prayer, that's, uh, that's what we do when we have food and when we really, really need something, right? And some of you are going, I, I don't pray at all. Or, or maybe prayer hurts. Or maybe prayer it just doesn't seem to, to get anything accomplished. So can I just like demystify prayer for a second here, make it really stripped down to the basics? Prayer is just talking to God. Just what it is. Prayer is talking to God. It's nothing fancy. It's nothing stuffy. It doesn't have to have a bunch of these and thous and our fathers. It's just all the stuff we have in normal conversation with humans, but it's going this way instead of this way. It can include asking for stuff, it can include praise, but in its simplest form, it's just talking to God. And that's something humans have been doing since the very beginning of time. It's actually one of the most natural things for us to do as humans, is to talk to a higher power. My grandfather loves to tell a joke um, about an atheist in a rowboat. And the atheist is there paddling along a lake, and all of a sudden the Loch Ness Monster comes up and tries to swamp the boat, and the atheist is paddling, paddling away as fast as he can, and the atheist looks up and he says, God, please save me! And God looks down from heaven and he says, but sir, I thought you didn't believe in me. To which the atheist goes, yeah, but I didn't believe in the Loch Ness Monster either until a minute ago. Uh, I, I share that with you because I think it highlights two really common misconceptions we have about God. One is that he's about as fanciful and useful to daily life as a Loch Ness Monster is. And the other is that prayer is only for last-minute emergencies when everything else has failed. And if you have any of that in your head, even just a little tiny inkling, can I just encourage you, take it, ball it up, and toss it out the window right now. I, I don't know what your previous experiences with prayer have been. I don't even know what your experiences with Christianity necessarily have been, but I do know there are a lot of bad examples, and they tend to get the most publicity. But I'm not trying to teach you what a Baptist says about prayer here. I'm just trying to show you this is what the Bible says. Over and over again, God invites his people to come to him. My favorite is probably Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, when Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you notice what Jesus didn't say? He didn't say, clean up your life and then come to me. He didn't say, get rid of your messes and then you can come to me. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, not used to be heavy laden, not were heavy laden. And mind you, he's not even just talking to the unsaved here. This is Christians. His disciples are in the crowd. So you can be a Christian and be heavy laden. You can be a Christian and be burdened down. And I'm getting a lot of head nods, so you guys know what I'm talking about here. Jesus doesn't say, fix your mess and then come to me. And some of you, that's why you're frustrated because you've been thinking you need to clean yourself up before you can come to God. You're already saved, but you think, I have so much mess in my life. 
God couldn't possibly love me. Yes, he loved me enough to save me, but would he really love me enough to help me? Guys, if you're human, you're a mess. Okay, let's just be honest here. Some of us hide it better than others, but we are all a mess. Jesus took on human messy form, and he died a human messy death on that cross. So I don't care how messed up your life is, you cannot possibly be messier than my Savior was on that cross. So come to him. Don't wait to fix your mess and then come to him. Come to him and let him help you fix the mess. At least you'll have someone there to help you through it. He wants to. He's been trying to get you throughout the entire story of the Bible. I challenge you, look through it, and you will see it as the story over and over and over again of God saying, come to me as you are, and we'll work through this together. But you have to be humble enough to go to him in the first place. And part of that is, number two, you have to be real. You have to be real. Look at chapter 1 of, of verses 6 and 7 there, in, in Nehemiah, excuse me. Let now thine ear be attentive, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant. This is Nehemiah speaking to God. Which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, which have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We've dealt very corruptly against thee. We have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commanded thy servant Moses. That's brutal. He didn't hold any punches there. I don't know where this came from, but we have this idea in Christianity where Christianity and prayer are an act. We always have to act like things are good. Because Jesus saves and I'm happy all the time. I'm all for kids' songs, but have any of you been happy all the time since you got saved? Not unless you got saved three minutes ago. I highly doubt it. Guys, I challenge you, look through your Bibles. It is not biblical to have this idea of we need to be happy all the time. Now, yes, we have the joy of the Lord, but joy doesn't mean you're smiling. Joy is an inside thing. Joy works through depression. Joy works through sickness, through sadness, through darkness, through death, through despair. Joy can be there through all of that, and it doesn't, mean, it doesn't have to mean you're smiling. Where did we get this idea that you have to say, I'm fine, when people ask how you are in church? Half the time, I think we're lying in church. <laughs> I'm seriously here. Where do we get this idea that, how you doing? I'm fine. I'm good. Or the, oh, <laughs> I shouldn't do this, I'm going to. I'm too blessed to be stressed, amen? <laughs> I'm sorry, but you don't get much more stressed than praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with tears, drops of blood pouring out of your sweat glands. Too blessed to be stressed. My Jesus was stressed in the garden. You can be stressed and be a Christian. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if my God can keep the planets in their orbit... Don't you think he can handle a complaint from you when life is tough? He already knows it. You're not hiding it from him. You're not tricking him. And honestly, you're not fooling us either. Just be real with us here. You're having a hard day. Say it. At least I can pray for you. (laughs) You ever read those Psalms? Some of those are real. (laughs) I mean, they're... I don't know, it was probably about four months ago, I preached on Psalm 88 on a Wednesday night. That psalm literally ends with the psalmist saying, God, darkness is a closer friend to me than you are right now. 
ouch. Where is that on our scripture reading, Brother Rich? Is that a few weeks from now we're doing that on Sunday morning? Maybe we should, because some of us feel that way. And that's how we work through it. You've got to be real with God. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 6. He said, but when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. Think like um, the prophets of Baal with Elijah when they were chanting and screaming and cutting themselves and doing all that. That's the vain repetitions idea. That's what Jesus had in his mind there. Think, they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be ye not therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before you even ask him. Use not vain repetitions is a really funky old English way of saying stop speaking aimlessly in your prayers. Prayer should be driven. Prayer should be purposeful. Prayer is not just meant to be a bunch of rambled words. Now, it, sometimes it is. Sometimes that's all you have. But prayer is like a good conversation with another human being. It's getting somewhere. It's getting to a point. And if you have to write down your prayers for that to happen, write them down. We look at verse 8 sometimes in, in, in Matthew there, and we think, if God knows my needs, why do I need to bring them to him in the first place? Any of you ever thought that before? I mean, God knows everything, right? So why do I even need to tell him? Let me suggest to you that our thinking on this verse needs to be totally reversed. Prayer is not letting God know the problem. Prayer is letting God know that you now know the problem and are ready for his solution. Can I say that one more time? Because this is so important to understand. Prayer is not letting God know the problem. It's letting God know that you now know the problem and are ready for his solution. And then after you've prayed, number three, you have to live life. You have to live life. Nehemiah chapter 2 takes place in the Jewish month of Nisan. Yes, it's kind of like the car. No, there's no correlation. This is about four months after Kislev from the first chapter. So we've got chapter one, Kislev, November to December. He's praying, asking God for wisdom, for going to the king. I need help. Then chapter two is four months later before he talks to the king. And we don't know why we, he waited that long. We're not told. But what we do know from just a quick reading of chapter two is that he didn't just stand by idly doing nothing. He went about his duties as a cupbearer. And you'll see that when Artaxerxes asked him what to do, he had a plan. He knew exactly what he was going to say. He had been thinking it through. He had prayed on it, and then he acted on it. When he got a chance to get what he had been wanting, he jumped on it. When the king said, why are you sad? What do you want? He didn't say, oh, you know what, king? I need to pray about this a little bit longer. Give me no, he just went for it. He offered up a quick prayer, probably for wisdom, and then he went for it. Now, obviously, in a message where I'm speaking a lot about prayer, I'm not going to tell you prayer is a bad thing or you shouldn't pray. But what is wrong is letting prayer become an excuse for you not to make a decision. We have this thing as Christians. I, all of us do it sometimes, but some of us are really stuck in this rut. And I can't help but think that some of you here today are in this rut where you ask for wisdom for a decision, maybe for days, weeks, months, maybe even years. And then when the moment of decision comes, you freeze. And you don't know what to do because you're afraid. You have a tender heart. You're afraid of making the wrong decision before God so you don't make any decision. You're stuck. You feel like life isn't going anywhere. But can I tell you, that is not what God wants for you. Because think about this with me. You've been praying for wisdom from God, right? Days, weeks, months, years, whatever it's been. Don't you think he'd give it to you? 
James, I just heard someone say that. Chapter 1, verse 5. Any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. Upbraideth means he's not going to make fun of you for it, right? Uh, I was doing an odd and end type job one time where I knew nothing about what I was doing. And I was asking questions about it, and I felt like I was kind of getting made fun of for not knowing that stuff because the people I was working with in that particular odd and end job, they did know the stuff. So I felt like I was getting made fun. That's no fun, right? I'm trying to ask for help here. The Bible's saying God's not going to do that to you. He made you. He knows you. He knows you need wisdom, so come to him and ask for it. And the Bible says he will give it to you, not conservatively, not a little bit, but liberally. So if you've been asking God for wisdom and you have a decision to make, he's going to give you the wisdom. When you get to that moment, you don't have to freeze up and worry, is this actually what God wants? Because he says he's going to give you the answer you need. God is not a helicopter parent. You guys know what I mean by that? Helicopter parent is someone who, who, who they parent their children, and I'm not just talking like young kids, I'm talking like teenagers, adults, maybe, you know, like my age, young adult kind of thing, where they're like standing over their children all the time, over the shoulder, because, oh, they might make a wrong decision. I have to, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. Yes, I know you're 25, but you shouldn't do that right now. And I realize, I'm not a parent, I'm not here to give you parenting advice right now. But can I at least just tell you, God doesn't parent like that. He doesn't require you to run every detail of your day by him. God, should I wear a blue shirt or a green shirt today? When what he wants is that you wear a shirt and that's modest. When you pray to God, get this guys, don't wait to live your life until he answers. Live your life and he will answer. Some of you, this is the key you need to get out of your rut of worry this week. Uh, and for your whole life. So let me get this across to you. You have been waiting and waiting and waiting to live your life because you're waiting for God to answer your prayers, when really what he wants to do is answer your prayers once you've stepped out in faith and started living your life. Because if you're praying for wisdom and he gives it to you, then trust him to give it to you. I will admit that concept has been really hard for me to wrap my mind around, but it is freeing. And I challenge you, study the Bible and challenge what I just said. Try to look it up and see, does God answer and then expect me to live my life or does he expect me to live my life and then answer? Because when I first heard that, I didn't believe it either and I tried to disprove it from the Bible. But what I found is God expects you to live your life and he will answer as you are living your life. Some of you just need to take that, July is about to start. Some of you just need to take that in July, ask for wisdom for what you need and then live through July and see how God answers. And I think you will find that some of you get freed from a burden you didn't even know you had. And I think if we're honest, we all came here with burdens today. Something we would change if we could, but we feel like we can't. Uh, Maybe it's a health situation. Maybe it's finances. uh, Maybe a family conflict. Maybe COVID. Maybe finding a pastor for the church. Whatever it may be that is burdening your heart today. There is at least one course of action you can always take. It's one size fits all. It doesn't matter if your problem's big or small, public, private, whatever it is, you can take it to God. Because Hebrews tells us that because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, there is no boundary between us and God. We may sometimes feel like there is, but there isn't. We can go directly to him. In Nehemiah's day, they still had to go through a priest. Today, we don't. You have a direct line to the throne room of God. Why not use it this week? Take those cares you have, whatever it might be, take them to God. 
Be real with him. And then live your life. There is never a moment when God is not caring about you. No matter how many times you mess up, no matter how dirty your life is, no matter how unspiritual you feel today, God still cares about you. And he still wants you. So today I give you the invitation that Jesus extended in Matthew. Come unto me, come unto him, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Now let's take a second to examine ourselves. Take a second right now. You can put the pens away later. You can think about lunch later. Just take a second and think about what's bothering you. Think about what's worrying you. Think about what's troubling you. Think about whatever is burdening you down today. Maybe it's one thing. Maybe it's a lot. Maybe you've got a whole alphabetized list. But whatever it is, I want you actually, with your heads bowed, eyes closed, imagine it all in a big empty space in your mind. All of those things, all the words, if you have to put them on a box to visualize it, whatever. Imagine all of those things in one space. Crumble them all up. Put in a trash bag over your shoulder and throw it onto God's shoulder right now because that's what he's inviting you to do. Our Heavenly Father, you are incredible. You are an awesome God and it's amazing how you love us. It's amazing the grace that you offer us. It's amazing how you are willing to take on our struggles, not just on the cross, but here today as we sit in our pews. And I pray for my dear friends and family here at your church in Williamstown on 1073 New Brooklyn Road that we would cast our cares on you, that we would have the boldness, the courage to take the things that we've been holding back from you and that we would launch them onto your shoulders into the sea of your forgetfulness and that we too would be willing to leave them there and accept your grace in your son's name. again for watching us online today. If you haven't done so already, please fill out a digital connection card so we know how to better serve you this week. For encouragement throughout your week, you can listen to past sermons by searching Open Bible Baptist Church on the Apple Podcast or Google Play Store. If you'd like to give today, you could give online at openbiblenj.org. Thanks again for joining us today. We'll see you on the next broadcast.